Okay, let's, uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the gift of your son and his teaching, preparing the Jews for his gospel. In your son's name, amen. Okay, last week we were largely just the Beatitudes, which uh, wasn't making uh, claims, too hard of claims about what you should do, but your state and various blessings. Uh, we, the word just means happy. Uh, blessing is, it was just the word of a fortunate happiness. And um, you have fortunate happinesses for certain things if you're a disciple of Christ. Some for your condition, some for your uh, commission, uh, things you did, um, enduring under persecution or uh, being merciful to people. But we were asking the basic question last week of, or this whole Sermon on the Mount, is what is Jesus up to with the Sermon on the Mount? Remember, Judaism has been running the show since Moses, and all sorts of different expectations were uh, present, and what Christ brought didn't meet the expectations. But he's got to translate for the people who want to follow him how are they going to be prepared for what the new covenant is, what the gospel is? Um, and this week, we're looking at the section of chapter 5, just to the end of the chapter, uh, which is held together by a phrase. Uh, you see it in verse 21 there near the top. You have heard it said. That phrase is repeated. Christ goes through a number of different, you might say, lawful expectations out of the law of Moses. And then says, saying, but I say to you, and well, we should, before we get to that, well, let's look at this first paragraph. Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, given that the rest of the chapter is intensifications of legal pronouncements, a lot of people, especially legalistic-minded people, look at the list and say, yep, it's that much harder to get at the stuff. More instructions of what to do. But he has that little, remember, this is, the Christ is having to speak to Jews who are followers of him, Speak to Jews in such a way that they're prepared for the difference between the promise of Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant that was what he was announcing with the kingdom of God. He said, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that little phrase, I've come to fulfill them and until all is accomplished. Now, um, The Law and the Prophets were not a mistake. If, the, if we were able to be made righteous by the law, there'd be no need of grace. So it's not like God made a mistake for 1,400 years. He had an intention for the law and an intention for the prophets. It says, I did not come to abolish the Law and the Prophets. You can read through Galatians, which is probably the most antagonistic to the law book of Paul's, and he tells you what the law was there for. It was to increase the trespass, 
It was a, to be a custodian for the elect people, the, the, the Jews, until what was going to come came. Christ is what was going to come. He has come, but he's speaking to an audience that still stands on the Old Testament side of the atonement. The atonement hasn't happened. He has not given his life. He has not been raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit has not been poured out. He's about to fulfill it. He's about to accomplish it. But people who see that not one iota, not one dot shall pass until all is accomplished, they automatically think that, well, the end of the world. Until the end of the world. Because they see the first part that says, until heaven and earth shall pass away, until all is accomplished. You have to be saying, okay, what is Christ doing with both those structures in the verse? Until heaven and earth pass away, is he saying, until the end of the world, this is, you've got to keep the law? Then you've got a problem with the, the apostolic teaching about the new covenant. But if that is just saying this, nothing, the world could end and nothing would pass until all came to pass that was supposed to. The law and the prophets were all pointing at either by their ethical intensity um, keeping the Jews under a custodian until the promise was fulfilled. And the prophets were actually prophesying the Christ. You've been through enough of Isaiah or other prophets to see all the things in the Psalms that pointed to Christ, and he's there as the fulfillment. It's not like I'm preaching a different religion. It's not like Hinduism and then the Buddha comes along and makes a different, essentially different philosophical religion. It's not a different thing. It's not animism in the Middle East and then Islam. It's one religion that the God of that religion had purposes to all that he was doing. If I get hung up on the law like a lot of the Jews did and said, that, well, the Christians have to keep the law of Moses if, if they're going to be Christians, then you don't understand what Christ is doing here, at least here and many other places in the Gospels. Now, it actually warns us a little bit there. Verse 19, whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, for, again, for the, the law-oriented person, that sounds like marching orders right there. Because it's about the kingdom of heaven. And he's going into these intensifications of the law. And when you know what his gospel is and know how his gospel works on you ethically you can see very clearly what's going on. That uh, you can't relax what he's doing. Okay? The rest of this chapter is intensification of the law. Okay? If you relax the least of these, you'll be least in the kingdom. And uh, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, we... We're all reasonably educated. We know what the Pharisees are. St. Paul was one. Various, you know, difficult people. 
devoted to the ethic of God. Personal ethical observance was the, the rule, at least since the Herods, for the Pharisees. The Pharisees had been into politics before that, during the Maccabean uh, period. But when the Herods came on, they realized that it wasn't working, and they went in for personal moral accountability. They also had an intensification project. They had worked out that there were 613 commandments in the scriptures. Uh, I forget what the ratio is, but there's uh, a larger number of what you don't do and a smaller number of what you do positively, but 613. And they were devoted to making sure those were kept in their own lives. There's only about 6,000 Pharisees which isn't very many given the population of Jerusalem, but they were widely respected, very powerful in the, in the religion. Um, but they, uh, uh, you've heard about the hedge laws. They said, well, we don't want to get close. This is, go to a Baptist church, and uh, uh, they don't want you playing cards, smoking, drinking, going to movies. They stayed back in the, way back, uh, back in the 60s and 70s. That's what you'd run into. Um, now, why did they not want you to play cards? Well, it was a hedge law to keep you from getting close to people who would suggest that you drink an alcoholic beverage or chase girls that uh, wrote bad checks. I don't know, bad people. It was to keep you away from sin. And that's how the Pharisees function. Most legalists function that way as having, what was the old joke, uh, um, they, why, why did Baptists not want you to have premarital sex? It might lead to dancing. You know, it's a... Uh, we can laugh at ourselves, I guess. Now, part of the problem, part of the problem is that the nature, and, it, and I want you to have this idea primarily going through this passage, the nature of the, ant, the ant, intensification. Christ is intensifying the law the Pharisees had their own path, which is create more things to do, okay? If you couldn't break the Sabbath day commandment about work on the Sabbath day, they had to set the distance of how far you could walk and have it be a Sabbath day's journey, so after which it would be work. You go to New York, Davis has told me about this, certain skyscrapers have Sabbath elevators that stop at every floor so that he Jews on the elevator don't have to push the buttons. My stove in the range in the, has a Sabbath button that people who observe the Sabbath strictly, it can do things, I guess, magically without work, without you pushing a button. Now, these are all things to do. Now, remember, Christ is also, you say, well, I have your, your, your argument Sure, it's pointing towards Paul taught the new covenant in the apostles and what the gospel teaches. But is it as clear as you say it is? We got, we got this characterization of these verses and I'm saying that um, you'll be called least of the kingdom if you relax the least of these. Well, it's not going to be the law observance aspect. I, I have a little reference here, Mark 7. And this is... He says, if you relax the least of these commandments, I don't know if you ever run across this. 
verse, uh, Mark 7, verse uh, um, 18. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and so passes on? Parenthetically, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus Christ just lessened a small article, a big section of the law of Moses, of the defilement of certain foods. He declared all foods clean. Now you have a couple of options. Either Christ is talking about great in the kingdom in terms of his intensifications, what the path of his uh, project regarding ethics in you. You don't lessen the least of these to be, if you do, you're least in the kingdom. Or he knows perfectly well that once he's accomplished it, Paul's running around saying all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Christ says certain food, all the foods are clean foods. And I, one of the th- this is just not necessarily edifying. It's a it's a it's a thought I've had. You can you can explore it if you want. Um, remember how Christ uh, says of John the Baptist, "No one born of woman is greater than John, but the least in the kingdom is greater than he." And I've known some pretty piss poor Christians that I think John the Baptist was well and above what they are. Now, maybe I don't have the right measure, but I thought, you know, who obviously is greater than John the Baptist? Jesus Christ. In some sense, has he made himself the least in the kingdom by what he did to the law? Not in an immoral way, but in a... um, well, some way I haven't figured it out yet, but it's a thought I had. Don't, don't write that down. <laughs> it's on. It's recorded. I'm in trouble. Okay. Now, I would say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, you have an option. How do you exceed the Pharisees? I mean, they've got distances measured out. They've got no buttons to push on Sabbath days. You know, it's got. You say. That would be an awful life. And we see all the teaching against legalism in the New Testament. And somehow I've got to exceed that. And I think Christ does that in the next uh, 20, 20 verses or so. Christ is seeking a righteousness higher than the scribes and Pharisees. And he says, if you lessen any of these, and this is where the intensity comes and lands on the Jews. Remember, the Jews are, these are not Christians. There are no Christians at this point. And uh, this lands on them, like all law does, as it's already seemingly impossible. Pharisees would just give you more things to do. Christ has a different righteousness path. Now, in chapter 7 of Mark, which we just read that verse out of the middle of, it starts the chapter with Pharisees were gathered, they, they were bothered that his disciples washed with their hands defiled, didn't keep the standards, the tradition of the elders. Um, and then Christ says to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold fast to the tradition of men. Now Christ makes a distinction about the Pharisees. It says, you don't have in the heart what you claim to have on the outside. And when you give people a task to do, keep the Sabbath, don't eat pigs, uh, whatever the commandment is, and the only thing you can offer them is uh, don't eat black pigs, red pigs, don't even look, eat something that looks like a pig. Okay, if it's, uh, if I had some South American animals, kind of are pig-like tapirs or something like that. Um, but can't, don't even eat those. We just get more rules for us to claim to honor God by, following as doctrines the precepts of men, and their heart is far from me. He gives an example about honoring father and mother. And then he argues on the food thing. Um, verse uh, 15, there's nothing outside a man which by going into him can defile him, but the things which come out of a man are what defile him. We all know that verse that your mother's probably quoted to you. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. My mother always quoted it to Doug and me because we were always uh, saying things that she wanted to correct. And, uh, and you have to face up to that. It come, what's, what's inside you comes out. The Jim Wilson thing was you have a glass of vinegar on the counter. If you knock it over, what comes out was what was in it. If it's, vinegar comes out, it was what was in it. Honey comes out, it was what was in it. Christ is concerned in Mark 7 with the heart of the people not being the under, you might say, the foundation of their ethics. Now that's a distinction about Christian ethics. The New Covenant ethics are all rooted in love. Looking back to the laws of Moses, looking, you know, when Paul argues in, in Romans that um, uh, Whoever loves his neighbor fulfills the commandments, fulfills all the law. Because of where your heart is, that's the, uh, um, that's the basic thing you're looking at in this passage. Um, we have with Christ standing there in front of them, sitting there in front of them, the kingdom of heaven at hand. He has announced that. John the Baptist announced it. He announced it. It's here at the end of his ministry, hanging on the cross. What's his word? It is finished. He's accomplished the thing. The thing that centuries had lined up for, where the translation from the old covenant was a written code outside the man, which he then had to abide by, and Pharisees who added more outside the man, written code that you had to do. And Christ was coming with the Holy Spirit to make you be someone else. You are no longer a person who just wants to be good. Remember Romans 7? Um, it's in Romans, the 7th chapter. Um, where Paul is going, I really want to do the law of God, but I can't do it. You know, I, I love the law of God with my inmost being, but I, I can't do it. Until the Holy Spirit fell on him and provides you with the, you might say, the, uh, the graces of love and joy and peace and patience, until your heart is different, you're still going to be like a Pharisee, teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men, finding a church that you think is holy because it's got lots of rules, and you're afraid for your children, so you want to make a lot of rules for them too. 
All of this is not ethics of the, of the Christ. It's not the ethics of the Christian church. You can, you know, spank your kids and make them good little citizens, but you can't make them Christians. You can't make them righteous. Because they're only going to follow external rules until they follow the imperative of God because of their heart. Now let's look at the, how, if ever you, a lot of times we took this, looked at this section as a set of proof texts on the subject matter that they each have. The first one is on um, murder, and the next one is on uh, lust and adultery, and uh, then you have swearing, then you have revenge, um, and we go to those passages not reading the whole passage, nor trying to have a, a viewpoint that ties what Christ is up to. Christ is presenting what's going to be the new covenant to the Jews who believe in him. He's promised them the blessings and the Beatitudes, that they're going to be salt, they're going to be light, they're going to be uh, fortunately happy if they stand for this, uh, the name of Christ and for the kingdom. But this is what the, the, the Christian faith is like. You've heard it said to the men of old, you shall not kill. Whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be liable to the hell of fire. Well, that just got it. That escalated quickly. Now, if you're in an ethical discussion with some other <coughs> Christians, We miss the point that Christ is trying to make. He's not trying to say, you know, you thought murder was bad, but it's just as bad, and you've been in these, uh, if you hate your brother. If you hate your brother, it's the same as murder. And we like to wield it like anybody wields a rule. The shortest distance between two points is a rule. We like to make a law. And we like having Christ make a more intense law. But where the, law, the intensity goes... Can you imagine that all of your feelings, the things that you just think you're allowed to have because they're your, the way you feel, I hate that guy, and you really hate him, or you really insult him, you call him a fool, you throw a slipper at him, I don't, bad in the Middle East, I guess. It's so bad, it says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Make friends quickly with your accuser. While you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out till you've paid the last penny. Jesus Christ is just ramping this puppy up at the level that nobody could do it. You could avoid murdering each other. I'm thankful that you all showed up second week and none of you killed your roommate or your, uh, your friends, your spouse. But he's just jumped over into a world that says, you know, down at the well of your being, the way you feel, things you say because you feel it. He says, it's so bad, you should almost panic legally. First, you've got to get it right. If you, anybody has anything against you where they know and you know that you treated him this way in a, in a, in a way that 
that was insulting and damaging and hateful, you better stop everything and go get it right. Or you're going to prison for a long time. That's what Christ is saying. You're going to a prison for a long time. They've got a case against you. But the thing that Christ has against you is only obeyed in the heart. Because, like you said in Mark, but their heart is far from me. I've got to find some way that I don't hate people. I don't have to find some way to stop murdering people. I stopped murdering people a long time ago. But we kind of, we look at this instruction of Christ, we go, oh yeah, but he understands. I mean, he's not really dead. I hated my roommate. He's not really dead. Jesus is just, you know, hyperbole. You know, he's trying to make us take this seriously. He's actually making the distinction between the law and grace. Making the distinction between the written code which kills and the spirit which gives life. Your heart has to be changed. You have the next passage, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay? Well, on board there. Got it. But I say to you, okay. we know our hearts, that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'm sure that's never happened here. Good neighborhood, high property values, solid Bible-believing church. No one has ever struggled with that. I remember when Jimmy Carter admitted, the President of the United States, that he had looked lustfully after a woman in his heart. He referencing this passage, everybody was like, what? <laughs> You're already kind of a loser, Jimmy. Uh, but uh, we go... Yeah, thanks, thanks, Lord. All these like impossibles. <laughs> and he, remember, he intensified your hatred for your brother with you better straighten this out before the courts. You better get his forgiveness right now. You're going to jail for a long time. And this one, he says, hey, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, throw it away. This is beginning to sound Saudi Arabian. I mean, this is, this is. Uh, it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now either Jesus kind of lost track of, his, of what we imagine Christ to be like, or uh, he's up to something that we're not listening to in the passage. There's a, I have to take on the intensification in the category it exists. Lust in the, well, it even says that, I have it bolded here, helpfully. He has committed adultery with her, where? In his heart. Because Christ came to heal our hearts. That we aren't this way down to the well of our being. Too many times the struggle in pornography in the Christian circles uh, is, you know, it's legend. We all, everybody hears about it or the problems of morality and not just the church but the whole nation. 
The problem is that we don't get people to follow the right rules and then we let them go dancing and pretty now, you know, ah, adultery. No, it's their hearts aren't changed. I have a, you probably don't have as dim a view of humanity as I have, but um, I have a very limited view of people who follow Jesus Christ. They're in all denominations, all theologies, and not a whole lot of them. A lot of it is because Christ is announcing where we're made righteous. We're not just made righteous by grace alone, with the righteousness of Christ, imputation, all sorts of things, and sometimes end up being excuses for not being changed. We put all the righteousness in Christ, and that he did not make me righteous, so that I can be righteous, because my heart is different, because if I love, I do not wrong my neighbor. And I, if I love, I do not wrong my neighbor, even in my mind, with an insult, a hatred, a, a lusting after his wife, whatever it is. It's expected to occur in me, this righteousness. And you're supposed to view it with, and remember his audience is, is used to the law, they know what the rules are, they've heard the Pharisees, never joined the Pharisees, it's too strict. And here he is coming along with an intensifier that says, oh, let's just deal with it all the way down to the heart. You cannot be in the kingdom. Remember, he said, if you make any of the least of these smaller or, or, or get rid of it, it means to say you don't have to be this good down at this level. They're the least of the kingdom. This is how it exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees just gave you more to do. Christ gave you more to be. And if you talk to my father and his, the years of his, uh, I don't know if he's paying attention now because he's got probably other things to do, uh, but he would always tell you and probably told some of you, it's a matter of being, not doing. Have you become a Christian? Not have you decided to do Christianity. And doing Christianity can be all sorts of things. Pick a church, Pick a, the, a, a theology, pick a, a morality, pick a liturgy, whatever it is you're doing. Yeah, it's nice things to have things to do. It's nice to have a hobby. But you are a Christian. And your are-ness in Christ is in the heart, the way you are in love. Now, it is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let her give him... Uh, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, makes her an adulteress. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, we could talk, and I've been in enough discussions and read books and, pa and papers on uh, what the scriptural allowance is on these things, but I don't think Christ is primarily about laying out groundwork. He's about the heart of the divorcer. Yeah, who's doing the divorce? The law just likes to check the boxes. Ever talk to a Christian about something, you're wondering about what they're doing, and they say, does it, have to, does it ever say that in the Bible that I can't do that? If it doesn't say it in the Bible that I can't do that, I could check the box. I, I'm obedient. The box got checked. This lets the divorcer know, whatever you think about uh, grounds for divorce, and it can appeal to those things, and we can um, 
work on the actual ethical anecdote that he's laying out with murder. It's an odd collection. Murder, uh, adultery, uh, vows. And probably then, just as well as now, everybody wasn't doing those things. But for the mind that has a check-the-box sort of mentality about righteousness, they don't... He's letting them know that, boy... If you, 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 you thought you could just sail through on this, she burnt the eggs. Or we're just not in love anymore. You know that just like your thought made you an adult, adulterer, your acts are also throwing people to the wolves morally because you make her an adulteress if she married again. Now, you can have different opinions about Again, what the anecdote that he uses, the illustrative element. But the primary thing here is we are viewing the world through, we continue to view the world through Jewish eyes instead of Christian ones. Again, you have heard it said to the men of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. We've all looked at the story of Jephthah and Judges and argued about, did he kill her or not? He killed her. Because he had to. Better that you not vow than vow and not pay. She knew it was strict. He knew it was strict. Lost his daughter in it. And then Christ comes along and says, you know, but I say to you, don't swear at all. Oh, that's good. Thank you, Jesus. That sort of lifts the burden, right? No. Either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Yes or no should ride you as hard as Jephthah vowing a human sacrifice. I don't know if you want to go back and read it. He vowed a human sacrifice. He just didn't think it was going to be his daughter. He would have sacrificed easily a slave. But we say, oh yeah, murder would be really bad. We're Christians. Our way of being means that my view of my integrity, my word, down to the well of my being, matters just at a yes, just at a no. We have been in hospitality work for 42 years. And uh, it is amazing how people treat yeses and nos. Almost like they didn't happen. Now, I don't expect them to be put to death uh, or some such thing. But anything more than this comes from evil. Did I have to swear by some stack of Bibles on my mother's grave? You are, you are, as Christians, something other than someone who measured the intensity of the vow by the intensity of how many mothers, how many generations back did you swear on? If I swore on a stack of Bibles, was it the NIV? Because that really doesn't, that, that's not binding, is it? Yeah. Living Bible, nah. You could swear on a Bible then and not have it really, I don't, know how much you care about history. It was one of the coolest moments in uh, 
history, Harold the Saxon, who I dislike, was trying to cheat William of Normandy out of the throne of England. It was 1066-ish, 65. He is a hostage of William of Normandy for a time. And William, in order to make sure that he had all of his T's crossed and I's dotted, made Harold the Saxon swear that he would relinquish any claim to the throne of England. So Harold the Saxon swore in a religious ceremony and then went back on his way, kind of like Americans and American Indians. You know, that kind of, let's, the, the circumstances had changed. He was actually possibly going to be king. And then William dragged out the fact that he had hidden in the box that had the tapestry over it that he put his hand on and swore, hidden a number of saints' relics inside the box. And that Harold the Saxon had inadvertently sworn on far more saints' relics than he could get out of. And the Pope said, William, you're our guy. So the Pope got behind William. It's a great moment. I love that kind of manipulation. It's Machiavellian and it understands what people are about. But you know, if William could look at Harold and say, that's a Christian man. If he tells me yes, it's going to be yes. Is your, is your heart clean of wrath and anger? Is your heart clean of adultery? I mean, because you love. Is your heart clean of trying to shore up your lack of integrity by how many mother's graves and how many Bibles and was it a Gutenberg Bible you swore on? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This, is a, this, this passage has caused more fights in the big house libraries, ironically. Because it talks about fighting. And you can approach it that way. You can say, okay, what should the Christian do if he's mugged on the streets of Seattle? But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your coat, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to him who begs from you, and do not refuse him who would borrow from you. Oh. Because couldn't we just go back to eye for eye and tooth for tooth? And you know why that was there? Because it made justice equitable. Someone lost an eye in a fight. The proper punishment is you take out the guy's eye. If it cost the guy a hand. You cut the other guy's hand off it. Even Stephen. It kept the feud from increasing. Tribalism in the early days of the Israel was only being ministered to by how they could make the families who did not agree and they wanted to up the ante. You saw the movie Untouchables at some point in your past where they say Chicago rules. They send one of your guys to the hospital. You send two of theirs to the morgue. You always increase it. But Jesus says, nah, let's not even go with that equal, uh, even to play in field. Okay, he stole 50 bucks from you. 
he has to give you the 50 bucks back and, uh, and, and 50 more. You know, you have to even it out. Numbers are everything. People have a great sense of fairness. Jesus said, no, it's not, let's not have it be fair anymore. Let's have you give away more to your enemies. You know when Paul talks about that, about suing a Christian brother before the civil magistrates? Don't you have anybody in the church who can decide it? Well, yeah, fine. He says, you know, it's a shame that you even have those fights. Wouldn't you rather just be defrauded? Let the other guy get away with it? Give to him who begs from you. And because this isn't, and in all of these cases, all of these cases, the, um, the clarity, although he's definite and he's intense, and he talks about how important it is, and you might as well cut your hand off, he's not really giving you a civil governing theory uh, of, of how this reaches out. That's why we get into arguments about turning the other cheek. Darn it, we're Americans. I'm going to punch you. Well, that makes me wonder about my heart, doesn't it? Christ is announcing to the Jews that the law, oh, you thought you had a law. You thought you had a strict moral law. Oh, you don't. You don't really even know. And not talking strict like we got much more laws now with the Pharisees. This exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees because this says you have got to be the kind of person that will do it and like doing it. Do it and do it in a way that costs you. That, that, that separates you almost from the law. You don't have to think when Paul starts talking about it all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. You're set free from the law, right? You did not receive the Spirit by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. Christianity is a different animal. Christ is announcing that different animal by pointing the law intensifiers toward the place where he knew that even the Pharisees were denying it. Their heart was far from him. He winds it up. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. I think I, you know, in good churches, sometimes in ours, we have guests, somebody will say glory or amen. In this case, most people go, damn it. Love my enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So that you can be on this team called Christianity. Because if you don't do this, it's reasonable to suspect you're not part of this team we call Christianity. He said, but nobody can do that. Well, so maybe if you actually repented gave your life to God and said, I'm not following me or following the normal course of all human beings, which is hate your enemies and love your friends. He will make his son rise on the evil and on the good and 
sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, in the Luke, Luke 6 accounting of this, this is a, the Sermon on the Level Place, which might be the Sermon on the Mount. He says, um, for, so, for so the Father is to the ungrateful and the selfish. Picture the worst, the worst roommate you ever had. Not your spouse. The worst roommate you ever had. The most toady, I don't know what your political opinions are, but I'm just assuming it's Idaho, a Democrat. Saying nonsense, blathering socialist nonsense, rioting against all that is good and holy, burning the flag in your backyard. Love them. They're unselfish, they're selfish little bastards. Guess what you get to do? Because the intensifiers of Jesus Christ are to call on people who have been changed, not to call upon people to do something they can't do at all. Because without the work of the Holy Spirit, without you being remade, ain't going to happen. Because this, this draws the line between what people look like. When Paul in Corinthians, early in 1 Corinthians He's talking about uh, them having all these divisions in the church. And he says, are you not acting like mere men? I could not address you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, carnal. He said they were Christians, but their carnality was they were still letting their guiding decisions, how they evaluated the world, and then how they decided what to do, instead of answering the Spirit of God and walking by the Spirit, growing in this kind of change where their love for others made them treat others down to the very unseen morals. Your opinion of a, of a woman that's not your wife. Your treatment and thought about someone you would really like to kill in other circumstances. If you love those, verse 46... Who love you? What reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Oh, it's almost twisting the knife in the wound. Telling you, yeah, you're just like, oh, I don't know, Hitler. You're just like an IRS agent. They go home, kiss their wife, and dandle their children on their knee. They might work for the Fed. Things that you hate. They might be uh, the worst. But they can go home and love their neighbor and cook a burger with them and have a good time after two beers. And if you salute only your brethren, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? That's, that's just mean right there. I mean, the Jews had, it's not just all foods clean, it's a matter of Gentiles. This was the big problem. This was... Christ's handling of what was going to be the big problem through Acts and through Romans and through Galatians where a lot of the Christians fell back into not doing what Christ said. They were calling him Lord and they were not doing the things he commanded. Because of course you don't love your enemies. Of course you don't treat Gentiles well. They're Gentiles. They're unclean. And then he ends it with You, therefore, 
Must be perfect. Oh, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You say, what kind, what kind of perfect? Oh, the God kind of perfect. That kind of perfect. He just laid out, he just laid out this intense, in a half a chapter, chapter 5, Matthew, the most intensified moral demand, without even addressing very many morals at all, just basically about four, four or five maybe, but in all of them, pushing the same button, saying this is the perfect, because you don't have to think about any of the other commands. All the law and the prophets are fulfilled in this command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of it. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to think about should I punch this guy back because I love him. I don't have to think about what am I allowed to do because there's no war between me and what I know is moral. I have become a moral creature. Your perfection is handed to you. Now, I wanted to make sure I, I mentioned, I, I keep referring to the teaching of the apostles on it in Galatians, of course, is a, if you don't, if you're not familiar with what I'm going on about, um, um, go through the book of Galatians in your free time, but I wanted to, uh, a few verses here out of Galatians 3, uh, I have the references down there. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no man is justified before God by the law, for he through faith is righteous shall live. But the law does not rest on faith, for he who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, as it is written, Cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree, that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now that's the apostolic end of what the Christ that he served was doing on the Sermon on the Mount and so many other spots. A little bit later in the chapter, verse 19, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the offspring should come, to whom the promise had been made, and it was ordained by angels through an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given which could make alive, the righteousness would indeed be by the law. So you're looking back when Christ says he did not come to overturn it. It's all part of God's plan. He does not want he wants it to be fulfilled. It was pointing to something that was needed. But the scripture consigned all things to sin. Oh, Now before faith came, verse 23, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed. So that the law was our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, it's the teaching of the apostles, it's the teaching of the Christian faith that our righteousness is by faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, not by obedience to the law. And when you read something like the Sermon on the Mount, you 
feel, if your mind tends to filling in the blanks to checking the boxes, you think you're getting more boxes to check. But actually, all of these illustrations are you, you being shown how the heart is being demanded of you. And when you have, you basically have to say, what kind of obedience is this? That's the basic thing. And then the, the sort of the final question is, what are you going to do? I mean, I've got to approach my God for the kind of um, connection with God that I need to have in the Spirit. Now, I have one more passage in Romans 3 because, you know, Romans. But it's a... Uh, I've got two more minutes. See if I can do this. Romans 3, what's 20 through 22... Romans 3.20, for no human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been, made, has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He agrees with the Christ. The law and the prophets pointed to it was fulfilled in Christ's new covenant, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the measure of it. That's what Christ is about. Now, next week, next week, um, there's going, there's, there's, there's one more path of evasion. We could be, we could step into the error of legalism, or step into the belief that I'm going to follow all of Jesus' rules here in the same box-checking way. But I hope I said it enough, loud enough, that you have to fix your heart, or God has to fix your heart. But there are other things we can get around it with, and in chapter 6 of Matthew, <coughs> next week, we'll cover some of those. And uh, he'll be clear. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're thankful um, that you have given us new hearts, given us hearts of love and hearts ready to attend to those around us and not to ourselves. Bless us in this. Give us the fortunate happiness. In your son's name, amen. amen.